Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. You may know I host a TV show called Adam Ruins Everything on True TV every Tuesday at 10. If you don't know that and you're just randomly tapping on this because you wanted to hear this interview, you're going to enjoy it anyway. Don't worry. You can be a fan. You can be not a fan. What we hope to happen is that people who are fans of the one thing become fans of the other thing. But hey, if this is the only one you ever listen to, you're going to have a good time too. Uh, Here's the premise of the show. On my TV show, I talk to incredible experts from academia, from activism, from, uh, I don't know, from the mall. No, they're not from the mall. Uh, They're more important than that. Uh, Not that the people at the mall aren't important, but we'd shoot a little bit higher. Uh, I'm not trying to talk down on the mall, all right? Malls are great. Um, Actually, they're not. I ruin malls in an episode of the show. It's upcoming. Okay, you'll hear it another time. My point is, we talk to the experts for like 30, 45 seconds, a minute on the TV show. On this podcast, I bring them back in, and we talk about their incredible, fascinating work and field of expertise for the length of a full podcast and really get into it. It's a lot of fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And our guest this week is fucking fantastic. And I'll tell you about her in just a second. Before that, though, please, I would like to remind you, Adam Ruins Everything is back every Tuesday at 10 p.m. on True TV, and you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. And, big reminder, the last couple episodes, I've been talking about how I'm going on tour. Now... When the day this is released, I am on tour. Not literally right as I record this. I'm in a booth in L.A. But when it comes out in a week from now, from when I'm recording, I'm going to be on a bus traveling across the country. I'm going to start in Seattle. Then we're going to Portland. We're going to San Diego, Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, Austin, Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Detroit, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. If you live in one of those places... Oh, my God, please come see the show. It's going to be so cool. We're doing an hour of all-new comedy about our crazy mixed-up election and uh, uh, why it's driving us all so crazy, what's different about it than any other election. I'm going to be using videos and slides and things like that. It's going to be like a stand-up comedy TED Talk thing. It's going to be really awesome. You can get tickets at adamconover.net. Guys, this tour is happening now and only for the next two weeks or so. And then this show will never be seen again live in your city. This is your only chance. So please, I hope you come see it. You're going to learn and you're going to laugh and I'll give you a big hug. We'll do meet and greets and stuff like that. It's going to be the best. Um, Okay. All that aside, today's guest is Stephanie Kuntz, who appeared on the wedding episode of Adam Ruins Everything just last week. She teaches history and family studies at the Evergreen State College and she is such a fascinating person. She is like... Adam ruins everything in a person. Does that make sense? 
all of her work is about how all the things that we think are traditional are not really traditional and how they're new, which is, come on, if you've seen the show, that's the kind of thing we talk about. Um, she literally wrote the book on the history of marriage. Seriously, her book is called Marriage, A History. She wrote the book on the history of marriage. You want to know about the history of marriage? You're going to learn about it right now. Um, she's so interesting and breaks down so many cool societal norms that we have when it comes to matrimony and marriage and what it means. And uh, you guys are going to flip for this episode. So we're so excited to have Stephanie talk to us from Seattle. Let's do it. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you so much for uh, for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. You're you were so great on the episode. I, I uh, and you were wonderful. You were wonderful to have on set. I hope you had a good time. Oh, I had a great time. I I really really learned a lot by watching you guys work. I admired it. <laughs> oh wow. Well, well, you you seemed like such a natural. I was I was surprised you hadn't ever done it before. Um, but uh, I I'd love to uh, just sort of first start by expanding on the ideas that you talk about in your segment on the show about how historically love and marriage were were totally historically separate. Is that correct? Not only separate, but dangerously opposed to each other in the view of most cultures, uh, because marriage was such an important political and economic decision, not just for you, but even more so for your in-laws and your community, that the idea that you would marry someone on such a frivolous and everybody recognized fairly often temporary basis of love was shocking. So love was something that, you know, if it occurred after marriage, fine. But according to the Southern French uh, aristocracy, the only pure love could be adultery because marriage was a business arrangement. <laughs> yeah, I think in our, um, you know, in our research, something that didn't make it into the episode, but in our research, like uh, there was this idea, for instance, of in the Middle Ages or, you know, the sort of like kings and knights sort of period, I guess, there's this idea of courtly love that was specifically love with someone other than your wife, correct? That's right, because love was such a mercenary arrangement. It was it was too tainted, and the only pure love was adulterous love, according to them. <laughs> because it could, it, it wouldn't sort of mess with this important social right. bond. Right. Now, the Protestants and the Catholics um, kind of disapproved of the adulterous part of it, uh, and they thought that it would be good that love would grow after marriage, but bo- all of the religions had, had told wives, do not use affectionate nicknames to your husband if you are so lucky as to fall in love, because that's going to undermine the authority basis of marriage. Really? So so it literally was discouraged a bit because it was seen as, as possibly complicating the the important social relationship and and explicitly like an authority relationship an authority relationship between men and women uh, men were in charge of women uh, and also because it would complicate the you know the the running of the business and the decision making people if they fell out of love might want to leave uh, the marriage and in fact the many religious leaders uh, both protestant and catholic actually said that loving your spouse too much was a form of adultery because it distracted <laughs> you from your real commitments to god community and in-laws <laughs> wow now when we talk about uh, i want to make sure because i think sometimes we paint with a too broad of a brush when we're talking about history and we say in the old days right and we ne- and we don't talk about which cultures, right? Humans live on every continent, right? We don't, mm-hmm. we don't yes. specify which cultures we're talking about. So, you know, when, when you make these statements, are you talking about specifically European culture or? 
No, this was this was actually just absolutely widespread. The idea really? that marriage marriage is the way in the earliest band level societies, it was the way that you made alliances with groups you might not meet very often and you could say, oh. All right, well we married into this group, so we're we're relatives. We're not we don't have to fight with them. And later on as societies became more complex, it was the main way that people struggled uh to get power and social status because it was not based on your individual achievement. It was based on your descent and your ability to mobilize labor. So you wanted to marry your child off to somebody who was higher in the social status or at least as high. So love was not part of that. And the Chinese, for example, in China, the word love had an antisocial connotation because it was almost inherently disobedient. It wasn't until the <laughs> 1920s that a group of Chinese intellectuals came up with a new definition of love that was applied to marriage and and was less um, condemned. <laughs> wow! So before the twenties, you're you're saying the main Chinese word for love was was literally had a negative connotation. Absolutely, and this was true in wow. so many many. And the Europe, the Western Europeans were the first to pioneer actively the ideal that it was a good idea to marry for love, and that had a lot to do with our earlier development of the wage labor system and the ideas of the Enlightenment. But that didn't become popular till the late 18th, early 19th century, and social conservatives were absolutely horrified by the idea that you would uh, <laughs> challenge traditional marriage of political and economic community, uh, you know, convenience by having people you know, fall in love. Man, this is so fascinating. This is talking to you makes me think as like, why am I even in my show? We should have just had you talking about this on television for longer because this is such an this is such a fascinating topic. So so you're saying this was this was a universal phenomenon among humans on Earth, because my understanding is early human societies sort of everywhere on the on the planet were very much based around uh, family ties, that it was that it was sort of a form of government or social organization based around family ties. Therefore, in nearly all of them, marriage was so important that it that love wasn't a part of it. That's right. Kinship was the way you organized social cooperation, obligations to others. It was the way you organized justice. It would have been considered just as immoral then to go after someone and who had murdered someone if you weren't related to the victim, as we now consider it immoral huh. to uh, get involved if you are related. So it was such a major way of organizing social, political, economic, and even legal life that it was considered absolutely stupid to uh, organize <laughs> it and make your choices on the basis of something like love. Love, wow. everybody knew about love. And this is why, and young people often dreamed of marrying for love. But it's no accident that most love stories, most great love stories of the past were tragedies. They ended with the with a death of the lovers or with a marriage to the person you didn't love. So you, you're almost painting a picture where and this is this is kind of stunning to me. For the vast majority of human history, people were were feeling the emotion of love, but it wasn't socially sanctioned at all. It was almost a a socially inappropriate or in some cases maybe illegal way to feel. And it's only in the last few hundred years that love has become a uh, like a, a major part of our society at all. Well, let me modify that in a couple of ways because as Please you know, do. there are, there are different kinds of love, and it was 
certainly considered acceptable to build a working partnership uh, with your spouse that was based on affection. It wasn't mm-hmm. essential, but it made things, you know, run more smoothly, <laughs> like in any business if you get along, you know. Um, right. But romantic love was also allowed and accepted, but not always accepted uh, if it was directed uh, toward someone and, and you intended to marry them when your parents disagreed. So this is why... Uh, many, many societies have accepted infidelity. Or, for example, uh, you get societies where uh, a man marries several wives, and you'll often be interviewing the woman, the, the man about his wives, and he'll say, this is my third wife. I married her for love. <laughs> hmm. So I guess, yeah, that, that idea that we have, oh, in the past, you know, cheating or whatever, infidelity was more... Uh, was more accepted. That's because so many people were uh, becoming uh, united for uh, for social reasons that everyone sort of maybe understood that this escape valve was needed, or at, l- at least it it made more sense at the time. Exactly, exactly. And what we seem to what we often confuse as being a universal jealousy when it arose was more about the possibility, as the Greeks put it, that you'd get somebody else's seed planted, as they put it, in the furrow that we plowed, and therefore mm. that other family might have a claim on your property. So that really that really did make people upset. It wasn't the sex so much. <laughs> I see. So when it was, you know, the the queen being fur- furious with the king for uh, getting frisky, it wasn't because she was jealous uh, necessarily of the uh, of, of him for sleeping around. It was that, wait a second, there could be like a, a bastard son problem where my uh, you know, my inheritance is going to be taken over or whatever. Or I might get dumped because, yes. uh, you know, that and, and when a man got furious, it was more because, you know, actually the woman might bear a child and later on that child might be able to claim inheritance or rather uh, the biological family of him might say, aha, you know, we're the people who are related to him. So, <laughs> and in fact, many kings, of course, though, wanted bastards because bastards were very convenient. Uh, they sired them with uh, abandon in in, in Europe, for example, because since a bastard couldn't inherit the throne but did benefit from their association with you, they were often far more loyal than your competing sons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love the idea of, of strategizing your children like that. Like, I'll get a couple bastards, they'll be really loyal to me, but then that's so funny. I mean, it, I, I think that's maybe why we find those time periods so fascinating is because the idea of having your uh, your blood relations be of such strategic importance is so foreign and interesting to us. Yes, yes. Um, so talk about how, um, if, if you would, about how that shift happened. You said it was the Western European nations in the late, in the late 18th, early 19th century. And how did those ideas, you know, how did we get to where we are today, where now love is almost, I mean, in America, love is almost our, like, highest social value or it's it's like we we worship it on this scale that it it often seems almost quasi religious um yeah. uh, how did we get to this point yeah. Well, there were a couple of stages to it because the first definition of marrying for love was quite different than the kind of love that we're talking about today. But of course, young people really did there were some miserable marriages. Uh, I can of imagine. Course. 
And so young people kind of always thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could marry for love? But they couldn't because they couldn't earn their own money. They Men had to wait till the, the father died to inherit the occupation of the farm. Uh, the daughter was totally dependent on getting a, a dowry. Well, so a couple of things changed. One was the development of wage labor. Women and men could go out and work for wages and earn enough to get married and defy their parents. You know, not all of them did so, especially if they had an inheritance and it's waiting. But that opened a a crack. Uh, The other thing that came along was the new ideals of the Enlightenment, that the older generation and the state should not dictate to young people, uh, which also opened the door another crack. And by the time you get to the French and the American Revolution, the American revolutionaries say, you know, people have a right to the pursuit of happiness. And young people are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that extends to love and sex and marriage, too. And it began to spread this idea that we should let people. And of course, it was encouraged by the fact that as you've got state systems and judicial systems and banks, you no longer need marriage to be your main source of raising capital capital and, um, you know, making sure that justice was done to wounded uh, relatives and such. So right. It was no longer the main form of social organization because there was now a state. Right. So now you could kind of afford to let people marry for love. There were new ideas that suggested it was a good thing. If you were old-fashioned parents who didn't want it, your kids could defy you. And so gradually in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, you got this idea that people should marry for love. But it was still scary to people. And here's why it was scary. First of all, parents didn't like the idea because their people might fall in love with somebody inappropriate from the wrong class or race or religion. Um, they were also a little concerned that, you know, if you tell people that marriage is about love, they're going to demand the right to divorce. And of course, sales of love um, novels and, and the divorce rate have always risen hand in hand. <laughs> and the other reason they didn't like it was because, gosh, if people love each other, men might start giving in to their wives. Or people <laughs> might remain single. You know, a woman might say, well, I know this guy, you know, I had an affair with him, and yeah, I'm knocked up, but, you know, it's immoral to marry for not for love, so I won't do it. So they came up with, you know, I think not consciously, uh, in conjunction with a lot of other changes like the spread of wage labor and the separation of household production from from earning money so that what men and women once did together and they were co-providers and yoke mates is the way so that men became the providers of money and women became the processors of the things that men bought. And there was this huge division between male and female labor. These things all combined with these fears of the instability of the love match to create what I think of as the first draft of the love match, which is the idea that, ah, Men and women have to marry and they have to stay together because they have nothing in common and can only get access to the resources, skills, emotions uh, of the other by getting married. This is the ideal of opposite. And so women were Uh, redefined. Opposites attract. Opposite. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly, which turns out not to be true at all but um <laughs> for years we decided that it was and wait wait well, wait did did scat cat and uh what's her name uh paula abdul lie to us <laughs> i think they did <laughs> or else they're they they've been uh, misled themselves by the the huge propaganda of all the love songs they had to sing you know <laughs> so the idea was that um uh it, and it was it was a response to uh, that new social instability and and the idea of 
of love was that uh, okay, men are like this and women are like that, and they both need what the other one offers, and so they have to they have to get together and stay together for that reason. That's right. But of course, there's a major contradiction if you think about it. You know, if I as a woman can only get access to economic resources, to support, to protection, to the public world uh, by making this man love me who lives in the public world, who's very dangerous, who knows things I don't know, who could hurt me at any time and who could withdraw support from me at any time. How do I win him over? And if you as a man can only get access to the softer emotions of life, which men used to have free access to. 17th century novels are just full of men weeping all over the place. But now you can't do that. You have to have a woman. Well, how do you fall in love with a stranger? And, Mm. you know, most of our emotional heritage, one of the things we're really struggling today, is that men learn to associate love with, you know, Protecting, providing, explaining. I think that's what mansplaining is, that they think that, oh, this is the best way to show a woman I love her. Let me tell her things. Whereas women learn to associate love with attracting this dangerous person and trying to tame him, you know? We learn to confuse infatuation with anxiety or, or even outright fear. Um, and that's what these romance novels are all about, right up through Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, this guy, he's, yeah. he's smarter and he's older and he could hurt me. But, oh, if I'm just girl enough, you know, he won't. Yes, <laughs> yes, he's, a, he's, the, he's the wild Mustang and, and I can never truly tame him. But but then perhaps he uh, he chooses not to destroy me. <laughs> that's right. He will make a choice not to destroy me. Lovely. What a nice way to put it. <laughs> but that, that it's true that is the that is the plot of of so many of so many uh, romance novels and and so much of our of our romance culture. Um, you know, we we see ideas like that play out in the media, right? Even in you know, I think of so many love stories that I grew up with. You know, the classic thing of it, the straight up classic thing of like my parents want me to marry this guy and I want to marry that guy and and how can I how can I marry for love, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like that's that's the Disney movie version and that really is playing out this historical change through the media. That's like this historical change from that form of social organization to you know, to to our new idea of love today, it's literally being dramatized like in our movies and and stories. Yes. And being told that it always has a happy ending, which, yeah. of course, it doesn't always have a happy ending. And, <laughs> and so we're trying to struggle with uh, is there something wrong with love? Is there something wrong with marriage or is there something wrong with our definition of love? You know. Right. So what do you think that, that that's a wonderful question uh, and I, I'd love to move there. What uh, what do you think our contemporary love culture, right? This sort of idea we were talking about on the show where love is worshipped almost like a religious object um, and, you know, love of for, love at first sight and and the one and uh, and the idea that once you find that person, you're a soulmate and you stay together forever. You know, what what does that get wrong? Well, I think our idea of love is a combination of of two incompatible and changing values. And then on top of that, it all gets exacerbated and roiled up by the commercialism of our society, which does Mm -hmm. tell us that love is something that, you know, you know, must provide everything just like, you know, everything from toothpaste to love has got to be, you know, this this height experience. (laughs) Um, But we have, you know, 
a lot of us still hold on to the older definition of love, love as opposites, love as strangeness, that you can't fall in love with someone you are exactly like. Hmm. Uh, They have to be something different from you. But at the same time, in the last 40 years, and it's only in the last 40 years, so I don't think we can blame people. You know, we're really doing a radical new experiment. More and more people are wanting a a love that is based on sharing and friendship. And there's exciting, you know, news that, in fact, many, many young people are beginning to achieve that. I got to tell you my very favorite uh, new statistic. About two years ago, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine about the the equal but sexless marriage. And these researchers had found out that um, people who shared housework and childcare actually had less sex and reported less marital satisfaction than uh, people who had the, the traditional way. Well, you can imagine the traditionalists loved us and those of us who were non-traditional were going grumble, grumble, grumble. But right. uh, it occurred to us that suddenly that, uh, you know, those were based on old data. And so a couple of researchers took marriages that have been formed since the 1990s, and they found out, wow, uh, the couples that share childcare and housework not only have the happiest marriages, report the happiest, best sex life, they're the only couples having more sex than couples of the past. So mm. this new ideal has a lot to offer us, but when it gets confused with the old ideals of difference, you know, and then gets completely conflated by this uh, advertising industry, which tells us that everything has got to be a peak experience, uh, we begin to put all of our eggs in the basket of that kind of love without understanding that that kind of love needs other kind of love as well. And I don't, you know, I'm I'm not talking necessarily sexual, although some couples uh, do manage that. But mostly you have to have connections with other people and you have to bring back new information and experiences from other people in order to maintain the kind of deep friendships uh, we have, which is why I would say that the date night is one of the stupidest pieces of advice I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) How, How so? Well, date night's good for the beginning of a relationship. Go out and have a date. And it might be good if it's the only way that you can um, get out of the... Well, no, no, I take it back. It, I don't think it's good for <laughs> practically uh, any other You don't thing. think going on dates with your with your loved one is good? No, you know what I would say? Go on double dates or go to parties because we oh. know that there are two things that really give people the most satisfaction and happiness are one, staying home and having sex. So send the kids out on dates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the other is socializing with other adults. Um, And if you think about it, you know, once you've known each other for six or seven months, you've heard most of each other's jokes and experiences. (laughs) But you go out with other people. And first of all, you get new ones. But secondly, I know myself, I'm, you know, I've heard my husband's jokes and stories. We've been married together for a long time. But I will often, in a party, say, tell him this story. Because, not because I need to hear it again, but because it's such a funny story that I get reflected credit from him being, you know, (laughs) telling the story. Which is why socializing with other people is such an important renewal. And to go back to what you were originally saying, I know I've been talking too long because I get excited about this. Um, The idea that you put 
everything onto this one relationship, it's like a pressure cooker, you know? Right. It just It just blows things up, and it doesn't bring anything new. It's not like a stew where you can add new ingredients every once in a while. Yes, that's that's what that's what sort of distresses me about our love culture the most is that you see people who make, you know, this one relationship almost their entire life's goal and work, you know, that that I'm going to meet the right person and I'm going to uh, fall in love with them. We're going to get married. We're going to have kids. We're going to, you know, stay together forever. That'll provide everything that we need. That'll give our entire, you know, life. That'll be literally the thing that gives my life meaning. Um, and if I don't do it, I'm a failure, right? That's there right. are people who, you know, if I, if I, you know, oh God, I'm 30 and I'm not, you know, uh, uh, there yet or whatever. And, and, um, that, you know, they're sort of like searching for this ideal relationship, um, rather than valuing the relationships that, that they already have. And then, um, when those people do find those relationships, it ends up, you know, if everything is supposed to come out of that one, you know, uh, that one situation with the two of you that can get exhausted very quickly. Like if you're not folding new ingredients into the dough by going out and, and refreshing yourselves. Absolutely. And if you're not finding meaning in other places, you know, what makes a good relationship is if you have a shared uh, sense that meaning in your life is important and that you bring some of those meanings back to your relationships and go out and get more. If your only meaning is looking into somebody else's eyes, that's going to get old pretty fast. (laughs) I'm here talking to marriage and history expert Stephanie Kuntz. We'll be back in just a moment, so stick around. Hey there, European Max Funsters. Do not miss your chance to catch some of your favorite Max Fun shows live at the London Podcast Festival, September 22nd through 26th. See amazing guests like Armando Iannucci, Josie Long, and Romare on stage with Jesse Thorne during Bullseye, bust a gut at classic panel show hijinks with International Waters, and witness some tough but fair internet justice dispensed by Judge John Hodgman himself. The Beef and Dairy Network show is already sold out, but hey, at least you can enjoy being in the proximity of the premier expert on beef animals and dairy herds, right? More guests will be announced soon and tickets are going fast. Go to MaximumFun.org for tickets right now so you don't live a life steeped in regret. Uh, welcome back to Anna Maroon's Everything the Podcast. I am here talking to Professor Stephanie Kuntz, who appeared on the Weddings episode of Adam Ruins Everything. It's very interesting because because um, I'm in a very happy relationship with a, my partner of eight years, um, and our to me like the strength of our relationship is so much based on our on our individuality and our you know individuation from each other and our our sort of growth as individuals. You know that that it, the, there's not too much pressure on the relationship itself because we are very concerned with um, you know making sure that we as individuals are still interesting people. I don't know if that's if that makes any sense. Well, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. Although I. Would- would modify it to this extent, and that is, and this is one of the other things that's totally wrong with the way love is presented in our society and in the mass media and that people experience it. Um, The one thing that you do have to be sure of, and it doesn't come out immediately when you're in the excitement of finding two individuals, but, but the one thing that is absolutely critical for a lasting relationship is that you share a definition of what is an important way to be an individual, uh, that you share similar values. 
Um, a lot of people say that, that religion keeps people together. No, religion doesn't necessarily keep people together, but a religion that involves people in shared activities away from the relationship, outside the relationship, in addition to the relationship, and any secular kind of interest. So the fact that my husband and I laugh at the same news stories and are horrified by the same news stories is a basis of commonality that is essential to making sure that our individualism doesn't lead us into totally different paths. And yet mm. that's the one commonality that I think a lot of people don't think for. How good are we in bed? You know, how do we like this? You know, the most important thing is do find some shared values and build your individuality on the basis of knowing that you can come back and the other person will appreciate your individuality. <laughs> My partner and I, I think uh, the reason our, our relationship works is that our is that our highest value is that is like the creative work that we do. You know, she's a she's an incredibly accomplished cartoonist and illustrator and animator. And and the work that she does is, uh, you know, that's sort of like the, you know, her first priority, as is my work, my first priority. And that's something that sort of keeps us, you know, we're not the type of people who are like, hey, let's, let's you know, build our, you know, our project is not our relationship. Our project is our own, is our own work that we're doing. But our shared acknowledgement of that is, you know, our understanding of that with each other is what is what makes the relationship strong. Exactly. It, like, and the... The respect for the other's commitment to that and the respect for the other's achievements in that. That's a wonderful thing. I'm very happy to hear uh, you as a marriage expert uh, uh, say that my relationship is on a good footing. That's really wonderful <laughs> to hear. <laughs> to Just to have your approval is great. Um, so do you see any you know, trends in American uh, love or marriage culture now, like ways in which our, you know, that that sort of, um, you know, vision I, I postulated of the of the love at first sight soulmate uh, sort of idealism fantasy is are there ways in which that is now changing or uh, in American society? I think there I think there are. And I think that most of it's in very positive ways, although, of course, the social and economic pressures of our increasingly unequal society, uh, which push parents, for example, into thinking that they've got to get every little advantage for their kid and do this kind of the rug rat mm. race, as one author put it, uh, all of these things can undermine uh, the kinds of positive trends that I'm talking about. But there are some tremendously positive trends. Back in the 1980s, when the first studies were done of marriages that were based on friendship and commonality, they found that they were not very sexy. Now, as my earlier example shows, we are finding ways to make equality erotic. Uh, we are also finding that a lot... <laughs> well, I that's just, that's, a, that's a great slogan for, for like an activism group. Make a yeah. Quality erotic. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, and it's a it's a project that getting there is is half the fun, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but we're finding all sorts of other ways in which people uh, and the younger generation in particular are changing. It used to be in in the 80s, if a man had more education than his wife, that was a risk factor for divorce. Mm. Uh, if a man earned more money, or I mean, if the woman earned more money. All, that's disappeared in the last 15, 20 years. So in other words, men are moving very, very quickly in terms of beginning to accept women as equals and not be threatened by it. Women, of course, have made uh, 
I think, paved the way in terms of looking for more ways to share uh, activities in gender-neutral ways. But uh, there are some things we still have to work on. For example, a lot of women, and I don't exempt myself, we want the man to be an equal partner, but we still want to be the expert when it comes to how to cook the food or how to raise the baby, you know. And I remember a couple years ago, my husband walked in on me when I was rearranging the dishwasher that he had stacked. And he said, you know, (laughs) uh, I've seen you write about women who gatekeep, but this is the first time I've seen you really do it. And why should I load the dishwasher if you're going to, you know, tell me you've got a better way of doing it? So we all have to get over these old habits. (laughs) Right. My girlfriend does that to me, too, except that I also pester her about not putting the toilet paper on the roll properly. So, we, uh, we... you know, I wonder if this is like a uh, a male trait. <laughs> my my <laughs> well, husband we... has one way for the toilet paper to go. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my point I was trying to make was that I think we, uh, you know, we now share the uh, the persnicketiness about different, you know, home tasks. Um, and we're just persnickety about different things, you know. Um, yes. Okay, well, let, let me ask you this. Um, the title of one of your books is The Way We Never Were, which is, I think, the, the that's sort of the ultimate Adam Ruins Everything title, right? Or premise <laughs> for a book. The The idea being that we have this, and tell me if I'm if I'm mischaracterizing, but, but that we have this image of the way things were back in the past, you know, like, oh, in the old days, people X, Y, Z, and that we're completely incorrect about what the past was actually like, that our image of the past is very incorrect. And, and is that true? Oh, absolutely. Listen to any politician talk about what our founders believed or, you know, the frontier family and its self-reliance. Are, you know, and, you know, it's not just families they get it wrong with. It's just stunning how many myths we have. <laughs> Great. So what are some of your what are some of your favorites or what are some of the most uh, egregious to you? Well, uh, some of my favorites uh, and the most destructive are the idea that, you know, Everybody pulled themselves should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which of course you know what happens if you try that. You fall on your butt. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'd be you'd be hovering in the air. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> if you had something to hold you up. <laughs> but but in fact, you know, like people are often talk to me about the self reliant frontier family. Well, you know, the the pioneer family was one of the most subsidized families in history. The United <laughs> States government paid for the cost of acquiring the land, sometimes by buying it, sometimes by massive, expensive military mobilizations against the uh, original inhabitants. Then all of the the basis of development was on, you know, the railroads, everything was on the basis of federal investment. Uh, It's so, you know, you remember the Little House on the Prairie? Books, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where it's all about how how the this little frontier family did it itself. We now know that though memoirs of Laura Ingalls Wilder were rewritten by her daughter, who was a <laughs> rabid uh, Anne Rand libertarian who hated the New Deal, and went home and rewrote <laughs> to get rid of everything in the books that showed how much the family depended upon not just neighbors but upon the state. For example, wow. there's a wonderful chapter in which the family scrapes and saves to to send Laura to school. Turns out the county paid for uh, Laura's books and tuition. And then in the 20th century, you get 
all these dams being built and electrification that no private industry would ever have been able to do. And today we have these ranchers thinking that, oh, you know, we're owed the right to graze for free. We can take over, you know, a bird refuge because uh, we, we built it ourselves. All of this was built by the public, by public investments. The only family that comes even near is the other one we mythologize, the male breadwinner family of the 1950s, which was totally based on— Yes, the the man who brings home the bacon, right? That's right, right. It's totally based on government subsidies. You know, half of all young men almost were getting— after World War II, we're getting federal subsidies to go back to school or to get right, training. Right, the GI Bill. Uh, President Eisenhower, a staunch Republican, did the most massive public works uh, projects in history, building the whole uh, interstate highways right. that opened up the uh, jobs to blue-collar workers and homes to white-collar ones. After the, the military turned over then for free all of the clapboard housing and prefabricated housing that made the housing uh, revolution possible. Uh, No private enterprise could have done that. And the internet was not invented in somebody's garage. You know, the internet was a publicly funded thing. It came because the military during the Cold War wanted to find a way to figure out how to intercept interballistic missiles. And the only place they could go to were all of these separate massive big computers in universities, which they'd funded, but which couldn't communicate with each other. Now, right. they had so they a built massive... the ARPANET that connected them. Exactly. And no private company would have had the incentive or the funds to do so. So this gets completely written out of our history when you get these politicians uh, saying, oh, you know, let's not, you know, we don't have to invest in jobs. We're just going to let people create jobs. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we have. It's so funny that this is touching on an episode that we have coming out later in the season about um, uh, the where we're doing a Wild West episode. I'll, I'll spoil a little bit of it for those who who are who listen to the podcast. You'll you'll get a little sneak peek. But yeah, it's about the whole idea of the cowboy as the you know rugged person to uh, uh, settle the West uh, was entirely ignores the fact that no one would live there if it weren't for the Hoover Dam and the invention of air conditioning. Um, <laughs> Very. You know, there'd there'd be uh, there are a couple mining towns, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the uh, rugged individuals like riding out on a horse. It was like massive coordinated, you know, the entire society working together on a governmental scale uh, that made these mass settlements possible. Yes. And before that, the railroads, you know, which were funded by the government and the big logging companies uh, who got free logs because of the fact that the railroads were given just miles and miles and miles of free territory that they could basically sell for nothing to the logging companies. Right. Um, are there any, uh, in addition to the idea of, you know, the, the the subsidization of these ways of life, are there things that we misunderstand when people say, oh, in the past, you know, uh, our common idea of the past of what, you know, the family unit was like or the family relationship was like, you know, the uh, the nuclear family. Is that something we misunderstand as well? Oh, yes. Well, uh, the nuclear family was, you know, most people just because of high death rates spent a good portion of their life in a nuclear family. But the nuclear family was not the ideal throughout most of history. Mm. Um, The ideal was a multi-generational family. And 
almost everyone who could live in a multi-generational family uh, did at some point in their life. Uh, so the extended family was was much more traditional than the nuclear family that we get in the 1950s. It was only in the 1940s and 50s that psychologists uh, started telling us that this was a healthy way to live. And you've got a therapist saying, asking, there was a best-selling psychiatry book in the 1950s, and it asked women, are you a modern mom or an old-fashioned mother? And an old-fashioned mother, and the the contempt just dripped off the pages, <laughs> was somebody <laughs> who would keep her folks in her home instead of putting them in a nursing home so she could devote herself to her parents and her kids. Wow. Of course, the other side of that, these kind of myths is the idea that extended families were always, you know, happy, harmonious, you know, Walton kind of places. And and that's not true either. They were very hierarchical, very exploitative often of the young. And when you go back to colonial days and read wills, you realize that um, the respect for the old that we think, you know, was natural was not at all natural. You know, people would write into it that if the man would say, if I die first, you owe the mother a cord of wood every winter, you know, you can't kick her out, this sort of thing. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, what, what do you think the value is of, of looking at, at uh, uh, the social history of these relationships? I mean, it, it's so fascinating, but it's something that I think we we do so little. Well, I think the value is, you know, people say if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. That's nonsense. But <laughs> You're doomed to think you can repeat it, and that's very dangerous. It's dangerous for us politically, uh, as citizens, to have politicians who think they can go back to it. And it's dangerous for us as individuals because it makes us either feel guilty that we can't reproduce it or feel angry at our partner or parents because they uh, can't do it. So right. we do a lot of the blame game in America. You know, why aren't parents raising their kids this way? Why wasn't I raised this way? Why isn't my partner, you know, producing this kind of image that I know other people had in the past? Once you realize that other people didn't have it in the past, that there was never <laughs> any golden age, you can let yourself off the hook not to wallow and remain the same, but to actually have the confidence to say, oh, we can do things better than in the past, and therefore we could move forward. Oh, my. What a what a beautiful message. I just felt like the, the weight of a false history lift off my shoulders <laughs> when you said that. Even those ideas of, you know, people, I know people who beat them up, beat themselves up and say, oh, my my dad had a house when when, you know, he was my age or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and they, they compare themselves to this like false image of their ancestors. It's it's such a wonderful thing to say. No way. We 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 don't even understand our own past. We don't need to try to repeat it. We can. We can make our own present. Yes. I, yes, it's so important. Um, but your dad might have had a house. Uh, there was a short period in American history when young men were earning higher real wages every year. Um, but that was also the period when blacks and when women were having no uh, access to these jobs and opportunities. 
and much higher rates of domestic violence in that era. So every time you look at something you think you might like, you know, you can't go back and cherry pick it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I, I love talking to you, and uh, I, I love your perspective on uh, the history and uh your work is just like a constant fountain of Adam Ruins Everything ideas. So I hope we have the chance to, to get you on the show again sometime. Well, I do, too. And it's gratifying you like my work because I love yours. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, let me thank Stephanie Coons one more time for coming on the show. I hope you guys loved that interview as much as I did. What a charming lady. I Guys, you didn't hear this, but... After we hit stop on record and we were still chatting, she invited me to come over to her house and eat wild mushrooms. Isn't that that incredible? Wait, that sounds weird. It wasn't a drug thing. She forages for wild mushrooms and she offered to invite me over and she'll cook me a meal of of sautéed mushrooms. Isn't that charming? She's a wonderful lady. Guys, don't everybody take her up on it. Don't everyone show up at her house and expect mushrooms. It was for me because we had an interview and we had a special connection. But um, that's the kind of wonderful woman she is. Uh, And that is it for this week's Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks. So please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. My favorite podcast app is Overwatch. Not Overwatch. That's the name of a video game I like. Overcast. That's what it is. Overcast. Really good podcast app. That's all. I'm just plugging it because I like it. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. That'll really help us a lot. If you do, I would appreciate it. Um, It would be a a mitzvah. Is that what they call it, some people? Um, I think so. And uh, again... Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is back. All new episodes every Tuesday at 10 on True TV. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. And please come see me on tour, adamconover.net. You can see tickets and showtimes and all those good things. And I hope you come see the show. You're really going to love it. And we'll see you next bi-week because we're a bi-weekly show. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.